1: And welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. My name is Eloise Ross and I'm in the hosting chair tonight while Flick Forward is off. It's my pleasure to be back here in this studio and I'm joined by journalist and editor Anders Furs. It's wonderful to be on the show with you, Anders.
2: Eloise, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to chatting um, all things streaming in particular
1: Great. So on tonight's show, we'll be speaking first with South African Film Festival Festival director Claire Jankelson, which kicked off, well, the festival kicked off this weekend just past. We'll also be reviewing season two of Russian Doll, Natasha Leone's brilliant series currently on Netflix. And we'll be sharing our thoughts on some other things currently streaming directly into our living rooms, like HBO's The Gilded Age, which you can watch on Binge, and Netflix's final season of Grace and Frankie. But first, the South African Film Festival opened in Melbourne on the weekend with an in-cinema screening at the Classic in Elstonwick, as well as opening in cities across Australia. The South African Film Festival is a not-for-profit event organised by a group of passionate volunteers as a means by which to showcase South African talent, culture and diversity, bringing the best of contemporary South African cinema to audiences in Australia and New Zealand. It's my pleasure to be joined by Festival Director, Claire Jankelson, to hear some more about their work and the place of the festival in the Australian and global landscape. Welcome to Primal Screen, Claire.
0: Good evening, Eloise, and it's lovely to be here to talk to you about the festival. Thank
1: you. Excellent. I'm excited to hear more about it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the festival came about and how it has grown in the four years since you started, I think?
0: Yep. That's right, thanks, Eloise. Yes, we've been going since um, 2019, was our first festival in May. And then of course, 20, and and actually 2019, we were only in Sydney. Um, We had eight films and um, only in Bondi Junction. In Sydney, what's more, and we landed up just about filling up the entire um, cinema for each one of the screenings. It was a tremendous success um came 2020 and guess what COVID struck and uh we realized we had to um you know adapt um as you've said we were uh, we were fundraising we're an organization that is fundraising for a project in South Africa we had already laid the foundations for um some work that's being done there we couldn't just let them down so we had to pivot and go online and in 2020, we were online right through Australia. 2021, we were online right through Australia and New Zealand, and we just had one screening in cinema last year. And this year, once again, we're in, we're um, online, Australia and New Zealand wide, and <clears throat> we're having an opening and a closing in a few places, in seven, seven uh, cinemas throughout Australia, actually, including Melbourne.
1: Yeah, so how was your opening night on Saturday night?
0: Look, it was it was wonderful, actually. Um, I, I, I'm in Sydney. I wasn't in Melbourne, uh, but apparently the Melbourne bunch, they were at Elston Wick, um, <clears throat> the classic over there, and they apparently had a wonderful evening. Um, look, the film that we screened at all the cinemas is called um, Nobody's Died Laughing, and um, it's a marvelous comedian from South Africa. He's much more than a comedian. He's a political satirist. He's so many different things. He's a real South African icon. He's a kind of a Barry Humphreys for South <laughs> Africa, uh, but a lot more political. Um, and he used his alter ego in the South African context to say what anybody else would have been imprisoned for over and over again. He described how he, it was actually a biography, he used to have all of these costumes in boxes so that when the security police came, which they invariably did during the shows, he just had to throw everything into his boxes and run out the other door. So, you know, he really um, was, a, was a, a remarkable person through the apartheid era. And this is a biography about him and it was brilliant and it was loved by everybody that was there and people were laughing out loud. Um, happy to tell you more about him. He's so, I mean, I'll just tell you one more thing about him because he's really so brilliant. But, you know, it came to the whole story of AIDS in South Africa and um, and AIDS education, which was so incredibly important. This man, who's a gay man, um, <clears throat> and, um, well, he's, you know, a bit older than me, um, he went around to schools over about three or four months going around to the smallest towns right through the country with these huge black and white penises describing how to use condoms and how to work with them. And you see these beautiful scenes of these teenage kids being so embarrassed by what he's teaching them, but how brilliant he was and what a difference he's made to AIDS education in the country. You know, so he goes beyond the political, but really to the social activism in the most remarkable ways. And some of his favourites, um, who screen very strongly in the film, are in fact Charlize Theron, as well as Sophia Loren, and both of them have absolutely loved that man and both appear a lot in the film about his life, and in fact yours truly had an interview with Charlize Theron and Peter Dinklage together, and that content is also available for the festival. So that's a nice long answer for you. Yeah, um, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah.
1: thinking that there is a lot of extra material on your website, which is a really yes. great sort of ancillary um addition to the festival that seems yes. to be or really value the online space and online accessibility. Yeah. Um just
0: yes, in... it is. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very important aspect of our festival. You know, South Africa is such a complex country. Um, that we've come from, and it's going through such a hard time shaping itself up into a new form and you know the scars of apartheid are strong and endemic and um and and at the same time, it's such an extraordinary country, and it just deserves to be well um seen and I feel that we do that with our festival. we cover so many different aspects of the country of its life, of its past, you know, rethinking about the apartheid regime in different ways, historical, as well as um, who is this country becoming now? What is the state of a language like Afrikaans, you know, which was the language of the oppressor, but is also the language of many people of color in that country? And how is their culture shaping up? you know, what's happening for women and the whole gender-based violence side of things. We cover that beautifully. We've got a remarkable film called Hashtag We Are Dying Here, which is all about the violence on women. And you realize through that film, it's not just about South Africa, it's everywhere in the world. And we've got a remarkable interview um, on, you know, which which is with the director and the main writer of that film, um, you know, we've got issues around mining, which are so important as well for Australia. Um, uh, and uh, there's a film called We Are Dying, no, we're, there's a film called, um, oh, it's just, uh, sorry, give me one sec. Um, gosh, <laughs> Dying for Gold. And it's all about um, the human cost of mining. Uh, especially around Johannesburg, which is such a wealthy country only because of the mines that are all around it. So all I'm saying is that the bonus content, the interviews are a very rich aspect of the festival.
1: Yeah, that's
0: that's lovely. Should I I go back a little bit before (laughs) going into all these films? I'll just tell you a little bit more about it because actually we're an international organisation and um, South African Film Festivals first started in Canada And they're also running in America. And all three groups, Australia, America, and um, Canada, are all fundraising for the same organization in South Africa, which is an education organization called Education Without Borders. And here about 600 kids a year are getting an extraordinary um, supplement to their education through a very innovative um, mentoring scheme after school and um, getting remarkable results. So we feel very good about being an organisation that we call ourselves a festival with a conscience. Um, and, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it certainly seems like, you know, that's true and that you, a lot of your films are really engaged in a social and cultural level uh, in terms of the South African uh, mindset on a global scale, Uh, I'm interested as well about the festival being largely run by volunteers. I mean, a lot of festivals, I think, and film organisations are run by volunteers Mm -hmm. at the moment given the current slate of things and I wonder if you could talk about some of the challenges or even benefits of running a festival like that.
0: Mm. Yeah, lovely question, Eloise. Thank you. Um, we I, I don't know, but I suspect that we've got probably one of the largest festival committees in the world. We're about thirty five people and all through the country, um, you know, because we've got screenings that are in Brisbane and in Sunshine Coast and in of course Melbourne. Um, so we have a very diverse um, group of people on our committee. We all participate in the selection process and we have a ball and we have wonderful arguments and discussions and it's a very animated process and we do it in a very scientific way. And we, we use a voting sort of a system and, you know, a rating system and voting. And then, you know, I do this festival together with a, a colleague of mine, Di Singer. And I and I reserve the right to have a final say, and we do exercise that every now and again, but we love to hear everybody's perspectives. So we try and run it as consensually as possible. And um, we, you know, we, we, we try and make use of everybody's talents, and we like to make sure that nobody gets too stressed on the committee, and I think we believe that. If there's a job you don't like doing, we're sure that there's somebody else that doesn't mind doing that job. So we kind of do spread out quite a lot. And you know what? It's a lot of work. It's it's, it's an enormous amount of work, um, especially for Diane and myself. As big as the committee is, it's huge. Yeah. It so does require an enormous commitment. Um, and, you know, like we're not quick on the whole IT side. And so that side of things is often a, a, a difficulty for us. Um, but um, it's it's a wonderful process. And I think being involved in a festival like that, especially with a group of people and the kinds of conversations that you have about these films, it's really, it's so enriching um, culturally in, you know, in so many ways. And yeah remarkable opportunities you, i
1: mean you've put together a, a a program of 21 films so features shorts documentaries dramas um which is a really you know great sort of slate for people yeah. to see for audiences to access uh, and yeah. that must be a really wonderful thing to bring those films not just to australia but to new zealand as well uh, yeah. and to do so for the fourth year in a row now
0: yeah it is, Eloise. It really is. It's a it's um it's a beautiful process actually. Um it's enriching. Uh, we learn so much. And I, I honestly wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love the work as well. Um, and um, feel that I learned so much I and mean, you know, coming from a country like South Africa, you know, you grow up in a very racist environment and um it's um it's remarkable how much there is to uh, the sense making process of you know of oneself and the prejudices that you carry you know through growing up in an environment like that so it's an ongoing extraordinary learning process and we're so excited to be able to bring these films to people here, not just for South Africans at all, but really for anybody. They are like, I call them world films, world movies, because they are, you know, inviting reflection um, on so many different issues and in such extraordinary ways. I think I wouldn't mind mentioning one or two of the films if that's okay, Louise. Please, yeah,
1: yeah. we'd love to hear some recommendations.
0: Yeah, look, the one film that's coming to mind right now, and I don't even know why, I mean, it is one of my favorites, but it is a slightly unusual film. There's a film called Dance Me to the End of Time. And this is a film made by um, quite a preeminent filmmaker in South Africa, her name's Melanie Chait. And this film is about um, her, her, her relationship with her partner, Um, who is a very well-known theatre director from New York, um, Nancy Digwid, and it's about their relationship. It's also about Nancy contracting breast cancer, and it's also about her dying. Nancy grew up in Kentucky on a tobacco farm, which in the 60s and 70s used to be freely sprayed with DDT as tobacco was in those days, and actually still is, but with slightly more caution. And Nancy was one of many victims in the world that has, you know, through being exposed to um, that pesticide, actually contracted cancer in the latter part of her life. So the film, the stories told by this woman, and um, who is the filmmaker and also the partner of Nancy, um, and the whole form is set to a background um, um, of Rachel Carson's. Now, I don't know, environmentalists will know the name of Rachel Carson and her book called um, The Silent Spring, which was the very first book published to speak to the problems of many of our practices, uh, you know, pesticides and insecticides and very various things and how they are impacting on our health and on our, the health of our planet. She was the very first person to speak about those matters. So the story that is being told here, Dance Me to the End of Time, is about the partner, Nancy Digwood And it's set with background with Rachel Carson's and how she was speaking in the 50s and 60s about this very, very subject. It's an exquisitely made film It's so worthwhile watching for anybody. And so even though we're dealing with the subject of dying, you see a woman who is dying with utmost grace. And it's a beautifully told story. It really is.
1: That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was wondering also about your closing night film, Beyond Moving, which is screening in cinemas in Melbourne and in other cities around Australia.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so beyond moving is an exquisite film. Um, we we actually um, did play it in our festival last year, but because it was so incredibly popular, we decided to use it as our closing film. It traces the story of a young, of a young guy, boy from uh, a small township in South Africa. His name is Sipe November, and he gets. Uh, There's a a beautiful woman who teaches ballet to these children in a township. And here you have kids with this unbelievable sense of natural rhythm. You know, it's in their body, the capacity to dance. And he gets spotted at a very young age of just remarkable talent. And he goes off to Canada uh, at the age of 10 and leaves his family and leaves his culture and gets schooled and... Gets brought up in in Canada and has a wonderful life over there, and gets brought back to South Africa periodically. And he eventually becomes a dancer with the um, with the um, Canadian dance uh, dance whatever school and not school, but theater opera, you know, and. Um, He is a remarkable young guy and you see him going back and visiting and dancing in these very, very rough places. And it's a beautiful and elevating film. And actually we have a wonderful piece of bonus content. We have an interview with Sipe November together with, um, um, oh, now his name has eluded me as well, but um, with um, the guy from uh, Mars, Last Dancer who is currently the director of the Queensland um, Dance School. And they have a conversation together and they have never met each other. And each one of them left their cultures at a very, very young age, Um, one against his will and one, you know, it was his own will to do so. But it's a lovely conversation between them. And once again, it's, it's such a big story and it's such a beautifully told story. And you have these wonderful dance scenes of both classical ballet, but also of township dance, you know, done with, you know, exquisite rhythm and um, movement.
1: It sounds like a beautiful way to end a festival. Um, If you've just tuned in, we've been speaking with festival director Claire Jankelson about the South African Film Festival, which is running online until the 24th of May with an in-cinema closing night screening on May 22nd in cities across Australia. Head to saff.org.au for tickets and to check out the full program. Claire, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope the festival goes really, really well across Australia and New Zealand.
0: Thank you, Eloise. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Eloise Ross, and I'm joined now by Anders Furz. Hi, Anders.
2: Hi, Eloise. Um, Looking forward to chatting streaming
1: with you. (laughs) So we just heard "The Thin Ice" by Pink Floyd, a track from the new season of Russian Doll, Um, and it is time for our first review of the night, which happens to be Russian Doll. It's the crazy time loop, time travel comedy drama which has returned after a killer first season in early 2019. (laughs) Take your train.
0: This is some kind of like 80s flesh
2: mask. Hey, 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 hey. You need help getting home, anything?
0: The universe finally found something worse than death. I broke time. Do I need to be worried? Maybe we have unfinished business.
1: That was the trailer for season two of Russian Doll, which dropped on Netflix on April 20 this year, um, or 420 Day, to those who celebrate, as some commentators did make note of. So perhaps this was part of a plan by the show's co-creator and star, Natasha Lyonne, who is truly very cool, as you could hear there. If nothing else uh, will get you in the mood to watch Russian Doll, then knowing it has a whole slew of rad tunes will hopefully work and we'll play a couple more of these this evening in honour of the show's excellent music. This season takes place four years after the last season. In the first episode's opening moments, we learn that Nadia Volvikov, Natasha Leone, is turning 40 in 10 days after season one took place at and around her 36th birthday party. The first season's premise can be perhaps most simply expressed as a time loop preoccupied with a deeply embedded exploration of national, cultural and personal trauma. Nadia dies and returns alive to the same moment during her birthday party repeatedly throughout the season, while another friend, Alan's very, played by Charlie Barnett, experiences a parallel time loop. The second season takes this to a whole nother level. We learn in the first season that Nadia's mother died at a young age and Nadia was raised by her godmother Ruth, played by Elizabeth Ashley. In this way, it deals with motherhood, family, trauma in really interesting, honest and brutal ways. And season two takes this further, leaning into Nadia's connection with her maternal kin, including to her grandmother, a Holocaust survivor. And the season, while chaotic and lacking the concise structure of the first season, maintains and develops its thematic and philosophical strengths. The way the first season ends, I really had no idea what to expect and I don't think anyone else did either. Anders, what did you think about season two?
2: Yeah, this one was really interesting for me because, Eloise, I shared your, I don't not scepticism is the right word, but I guess um, not quite knowing where the season would take things because season one was very well um, structured, very well made and sort of wrapped itself up in, the, in a very sort of nice way towards the end. So I think, um, as you say, the second season really does extend those key themes um, uh, further, particularly, I mean, it's sort of looking at, at, at the impact of inter, intergenerational trauma on the women of this family, of Natasha Leon's character's family in particular. um but I did, I mean, I did think that it was fairly messy um, plotting and there were several episodes, moments where there was a need to suspend disbelief that I just couldn't do in the way that I very much did in the first season, um, which I think is a bit of a stumbling block for me in terms of how much I really engage with this season uh, as a whole. Um, however, still not without interest. I mean... I think it's really interesting how deliberately it it sets itself up in contrast with season one, which is entirely repeating the same day over and over and over again. Here we're sort of going in the complete opposite direction, where we're time travelling several decades, you know, uh, again and again and again. What did you think of that, I guess, opening up of, of, of the show's temporal possibilities?
1: I mean, I thought it was really exciting and it does come in the first episode where Natasha – or Natasha uh, Nadia, sorry, gets on a train, the sixth train specifically, and ends up back in 1982 in the year she was born. Um, and that sort of happens in, you know, the very first episode of season two. So we do see it immediately and kind of immediately get pulled back in time and realise – okay, this is still a time loop, time travel show, but it's doing things differently. I think that the you know the metaphorical space of the train works really well um, because it's visually and also cinematically kind of about movement and specifically about travel. And in terms of what the show is dealing with, it's a symbol of escape as well, very specifically in a number of different ways. Um, and that, I think works really well in the show's favor. You know this idea of getting on and off trains and just constantly moving.
2: There, there is a lot of movement. That's so true. Um, there, actually, there is like even down to if, if you've seen the first season, you'll remember Natasha Leon's great characterization of Nadia. Like she's never still. She's always sort of bobbing around, sort of lurching almost from like one thing to always got a cigarette in her hand. <laughs> um, I think her characterization was really what drew me through um, this season. Like, it really, I think, carried it. I thought thought Charlie Barnett's character sort of got a bit lost, sadly, because I really thought the show was gesturing at interesting stuff with him um, but didn't quite explore it. It really, it felt like it was Nadia's story, really. He
1: did seem a little forgotten, which is a shame because he really becomes, like, the co-, not the co-host of the show but the co-kind of lead in season one. With this... it. I feel like certain episodes just kind of forgot him. There was one in particular where I don't think we saw him until the very last shot and I was so excited when, you know, we spotted him. But, yeah, this... Part of it is, I think, part of the merit of the show, which is that it's so short. There are like 25, 30 minute episodes and this is seven episodes this season. So it's really, I mean, I don't know what is the maths on that. You're only getting kind of three hours of a show to tell this whole story when there are other shows that are Netflix that kind of maybe sign on to too much and then they need to pat themselves out. This show almost has the other problem where it's trying to do too much and needs more yeah. time and space to explore it.
2: Yeah. I, I'd agree with that because it is, it's wildly ambitious, I think. And really exploring very interesting questions um, I, the other thing I love about this season, which carries through quite strongly from the first is it's a very particular vision of New York city, which I love, you know, the sort of street level um, she's out and about. She's always sort of walking around at night in this sort of really beautiful, um, you know, I imagine they're sets, sets and or on location Um, just, you know, the way she interacts with like the local convenience store owner, um, the, you know, homeless guy on the street who she has a relationship with who's actually quite interestingly used this season like I really do love all of that New York City specificity
1: Mm, and they do go into the train tunnels as well so the subway tunnels on trains and also in other ways so it's I think you know it's really uh, integrated into the city on a street level and subterranean level and doing a whole lot of you know, really fun things with that space in a way that we don't often see, you know, often New York is kind of glamorised to a different extent.
2: Exactly. It's sort of like the polar opposite of something like Billions, which I've been watching and sort of growing steadily less interested in. And that is very much, you know, the glitz and the glam, um, you know, succession, that kind of, you know, top 1% um, vision of New York. It's nice to see there's still space for this kind of depiction of the city.
1: Yeah, and something else that season two does really well to continue on from the first season is deal with this concept of matrilineage and Nadia's mother and grandmother. Uh, Chloe Sevigny returns as Nadia's mother in the 1980s, which is really, um, you know, a really interesting kind of character exploration that we have. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Anders and Eloise, and we're currently chatting about the new season of Russian Doll, which hit Netflix a couple of weeks ago. That track was "Mother" by Danzig, a really pertinent to the themes of the show, as one of several tracks that appear that feature this concept of motherhood and the mother. So the series, and particularly. This season um, really deals with these themes and these relationships. We have Chloe Seveny return as Lenora Nadia's mother in a more sustained presence this season. Uh, Lilius White as Dr. Zaveri, Alan's mother, appears again in season two, only briefly, but still Alan's connection to his mother is really strong. Um, Carolyn Michelle Smith as Agnes, Alan's grandmother. Uh, and Irene Bourdain is Vera Peshaw and Adia's grandmother. I mention her because I love her so much. She's such a brilliant character and presence on screen.
2: <laughs> yes, 100% agree. Um, I w- Let's start with Chloe Sevigny then, Elo, um, because, yeah, she's a connection from the first season and really, um, I guess, was given more to do. I mean, what I found interesting just to link this briefly back to our New York chat is that to me Sevigny is a bit of a New York icon like she 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 embodies being Manhattan and New York I mean almost on a friend Leibovitz Level Okay, maybe not quite. But she is, is she, to me she um, uh, generates, um, you know, imagery of the city. So I, it, I wonder if that was a deliberate casting on behalf of the producers.
1: I mean possibly. I think Natasha Leone is also a New York icon and they're yeah. best friends so the casting was very particular I would think in that they both know, I'm sure, how iconic they are when connected with New York City it's kind of just all – I feel like I'm in on some kind of secret with them, which, of course, I'm not. But.
2: <laughs> it's nice to feel that as a viewer, though. Um, so, um, yeah, what, what, what do you think about this idea of matriarchal lineage, Eloise? Because I think that is that is what the show's about. And it's interesting that there is a striking absence of male characters, certainly in this family.
1: Yeah, none of them – I mean, the two leads don't have fathers. They don't really seem to have grandfathers who are present or even, like, relevant to this kind of um, investigation into family history or, you know, the presence of family trauma. The the concept of a father is just kind of cast aside. And so I think – I mean, we can't be too sort of – straight down the line on this, but it's created, produced, largely written by a core team of uh, Leon, Amy Pola, and Leslie Headland, or at least in the first season, uh, and a group of other creatives and writers, largely women. And I can't help but think that there's a connection here in sort of trying to give, I guess, space to explore a lot of really heavy issues that haven't been typically given the space to interrogate in you know in the same way
2: Mm, mm. um i i'm sort of conscious of giving spoilers i don't want to spoil too much but i think generally speaking it is interesting because i guess it is looking at the impacts of um well i mean their experience of the holocaust uh how that perpetuates itself through the women in this family
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, that also connects to, I was reading a little bit, connects to Natasha Lyonne's life and family history as well because her grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And so she has this connection that is explored through this character and through this um, process in the show. I also love that this is a series that, like so many streaming series, um, but Done particularly uniquely in Russian doll is that it's not interested in conventional structure or conventional endings or giving anyone easy answers. Like, this is a jigsaw that we sort of have to put together um, and investigate on our own, on a whole other level to the investigation that the characters are doing. And possibly this is a stretch um, and it's not an interactive show unless you count, like, having the remote at home as an interactive user-based activity. Um, But I wonder if Leon imagined this show as a sort of update of the Weimar Rebus films um, that short lived format in the 1920s with crossword puzzles in films um, because she's apparently really into word puzzles, which is another thing that um, I, you know, really excites me about. Her creative kind of thinking, because I also love word puzzles and crossword puzzles. And the show across both seasons is a puzzle asking viewers to like put something together and maybe, you know, make our own connections. This, again, this image of the train kind of going somewhere, putting pieces into place brings this imagery um, to mind.
2: Mm, that's, I, I find that a really interesting. Connection because I, I, it's a way to maybe unlock this season and explain what I resisted watching it, which was that sort of strange plotting, you know, there's just one too many coincidences. Um, it's that kind of thing where, you know, the main character goes out to, like, figure something out and then, like, she goes to a city and happens to be in the right, you know, apartment block at the right time to stumble into the right character, you know, that sort of thing. Um But if you view it as a sort of game that is trying to untangle these effects we've been talking about, I find it... um, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And also it speaks to its production context as a Netflix show because, um, you know, the conventional idea of plotting around commercial breaks, around, you know, a a 10-episode or a 22-episode season year in, year out, following a very specific arc... Um, on an episode-by-episode episode level and season-by-season season level, all of that goes out the window with streaming. It's like the new rules are being written. And we've seen, I mean, I've, I still remember, you know, that Arrested Development season, um, the one that was made for Netflix like years ago now at this point that everyone sort of hated. But that spoke so strongly to the ability to binge-watch, like it, because it kept on doubling back on itself, actually, in a very interesting way to consider, and having just watched Russian Doll, that um, Arrested Development season was a departure from the uh, the structure that was used on the network, the Fox um, seasons of that show. There was a lot of going back on to events that had already happened and showing them from different angles in a way that only made sense if you were watching episodes very closely with each other. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it, interestingly, much like that show, to an extent, it does speak to the unique... Uh, affordances of streaming, you know, for better or worse, I'm not sure, but it's definitely present.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I know when I watched the first season of Russian Doll, I think I immediately watched it again, um, just immediately, which I could do because it was right there in front of me. I didn't have to wait for the DVDs to come out or for the reruns and things like that. I think I might have to do the same with season two. Um, And you can as well. Russian Doll is currently streaming on Netflix.
2: Well, from one vision of New York City to quite another, um, let's talk about HBO's The Gilded Age, which is streaming on Binge here in Australia. It's set in the so-called Gilded Age of the 1880s, and this is a a time period that's having a moment, if you um, pay any attention to American celebrity culture. It was the theme of the Met Gala last week. the show is written by Julian Fellows, who is a very toffee sort of English gentleman, is an actor, writer, director, and even, um, I just learned this while researching today, a conservative peer in the House of Lords in the UK. So there you go. But right. he's most well known for creating Downton Abbey. Um, he specialises in period drama soap operas, basically. Um, this is a genre that's very dear to my heart. I do recommend Sanditon. That's based on Jane Austen's unfinished novel. The second season just hit binge as well. Um, Let's hear a brief excerpt from the trailer for this show, which introduces its themes quite well. You're going to hear the dulcet tones of Christine Baranski. New York is a collection of villages. The old have been in charge since before the revolution until the new people invaded. Well, I'm new. I've only just arrived. You are my niece and you belong to old New York. George Russell is a power in the land.
0: Before long, he'll put money into his pocket with every train ticket you buy. I think we should know the Russell family. We do not move in the same circles. Mama, you are encouraging. I take that as the highest praise.
2: Yes, so as you heard, this show is all about life in New York in the 1880s in the top 1%. And it sets up this clash between two families... We live across the street from each other near Central Park. There's the old money of the Ryan Brook family and the nouveau Riche Russells. Uh, you have various members of these families, uh, plus another key character, Peggy Scott played by Denise Benton. Um, She's an African-American journalist who takes up a job as Christine Baranski's character's uh, Aunt Aunt Agnes, her secretary, and choosing to live and work with her and not return to her family in Brooklyn. But the key focus really uh, is these social climbers who are newly arrived on the scene in New York City and trying desperately to break into New York society.
1: So it sounds like a show that I might be into. I mean I love shows about ridiculously rich people just having like all of these problems that are completely fantastical from – any sort of reality that we might have um, in our own life. However, I'm not really sold on it as a period drama. I've never been into Downton Abbey. I don't know. I mean, I love the Christine Baranski element. She seems like she's this fantastic kind of caustic, cutting, kind of very proper lady who you just don't want to cross Um, And um, Cynthia Nixon is in this show, Carrie Coon. I mean, the cast sort of seems like I should love it, but I've, I haven't watched it
2: so far. (laughs) Look, I, I, the cast is what makes this show, and there is great acting, um, particularly from these three central women. Um, So, Christine Baranski, I mean, she's compulsively watchable. People would know her from the Good uh, Fight and the Good Wife, among other recent shows. And Cynthia Nixon again. Sorry. (laughs)
1: Cruel Intentions.
2: Oh, cruelly, yes, of course, of course, sorry, Um, of course, Um, and Cynthia Nixon, who has also been in and just like that that. Again, <laughs> not great, but also compulsively watchable Sex on the City uh, sequel that came out earlier this year. But above all, Carrie Coon as this driving Mrs Russell. She brings a sort of purpose, determination and some warmth to what is quite a complex character. But, yeah, look, what I love about this show is these hilariously low stakes. So the drama half the time is about who gets invited to which dinner party when the daughter of the rich family can come out to society, uh, that sort of stuff. I've been, seen it being described as the real housewives of 1800s New York City, <laughs> which I think is kind of an apt description. Um, and upon instantly hearing that, you didn't know instantly whether you'd love or hate this. But look, there's sumptuous dresses and sets, really beautiful production design. And I think the combination of that and the very low-stakes storytelling makes for quite a comforting show to watch really you know as we head into winter i do recommend this for nice sort of cozy viewing
1: i love that Idea of low-stakes viewing. I mean, Russian Doll absolutely isn't. It's so – it moves very quickly, but it's so heavy and there is so much going on. Something else – I mean, maybe these stories of ridiculously, like, grotesquely rich people are low-stakes because it's all fantasy in a sense, which is something that I love about Grace and Frankie, my current show that I'm watching. I don't think I've got very much of it left. This is the longest-running – Original Netflix series ever, as I learned today. Cur- oh, wow. Currently concluding with its seventh and final season. If you haven't watched any Grace and Frankie, it might be a bit much to binge a full seven seasons because the characters are a little over the top. Um, and, I mean, I feel like I could binge watch Grace uh, Grace and Frankie, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, uh, who play best friends and housemates for hours and hours and hours, but the kind of sub-storyline about their ex-husbands played by Sam Waterston and Martin Sheen who are now married to each other after leaving their wives um, in the first episode of the show aren't really all that exciting and they just kind of seem like they whinge about the same issues (laughs) which are completely um, like confected and just bizarre but Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin are so wonderful and beautiful to watch on screen and there's so much history in their um personal and also I guess cinematic kind of hollywood and extraneous relationship that just watching them be these kind be themselves almost and be these wonderful women who are aging in the public space is Really, really fun and I have to admit that I tear up more often than not, more episodes than I don't tear up because they're just so beautiful together. And anyway, there's, I think, I don't know, the, the, the second part of season seven, uh, because of COVID it was released in two parts, has just released last week. So I've got a couple more to And this is it,
2: isn't it? This is the final season.
1: Yep, this is it. I mean, they're
2: such icons, aren't they, Fonda and Tomlin? They've been acting for decades and they're sort of famously best friends. So it's pretty awesome that they get, they've get they had such a sustained chance to, you know, create a TV show together.
1: Yeah, and really, you know, explore some things that they, um, you know, that they consider as essential to what, what film or TV is supposed to do, which is um, really, I mean, they get through some issues that are really pertinent to older women, I think that don't sort of get a lot of visibility elsewhere, which is really, really great. So I highly recommend it also as a lovely winter comfort show to cozy up on the couch too. So you've been listening to primal screen on triple R with Anders furs and Eloise Ross Earlier tonight we spoke with festival director Claire Jankelson about the South African Film Festival which is running across Australia and New Zealand until the 24th of May. Head to saff.org.au to buy tickets and check out the full program. We also reviewed the new season of Russian Doll, currently on Netflix, and looked at The Gilded Age and Grace and Frankie currently streaming, um, where you can watch them now or watch them in your own time. One of the benefits of the new streaming world that we live in. Um, It's certainly a different landscape for television consumption than when we were growing up. I feel quite fondly um, I think quite fondly about those ad breaks, the ad break rhythm of TV shows when we were kids, Anders, but no longer.
2: <laughs> yes, alas. And what's interesting is it's still changing, you know. Who knows where this is going to end up?
1: Yeah. So please listen back online to the show at rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on R.